Today we will be in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. I'm going I'm to read this passage. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to dive into this, uh, to this passage. So Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Forgive me as I, I'm about to butcher probably half of these names. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathetah, the son of Levi, the son of Malachi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Isli, the son of Nagi, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simin, the son of Joshash, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Rasah, the son of Zuber Baal, the son of Shelatil, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kazam. Oh, forgive me. The son of El Madam, the son of Ur, the son of jo- Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jerome, the son of Ma- Mathat the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of El-Ekim, the son of Mila, the son of Mena, the son of Mahatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nahashan, the son of Emenadab, the son of Admin, the son of Erna, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Shurg, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Erpaxada, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalahel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So why in the world would we look at a passage full of names? It's actually 77 or 76. I went through and I counted it twice, and I didn't want to count through it a third time, so we're just going to say 76 and a half. Um, but why, how, you, you may be thinking this morning, okay, how in the world can this be an encouraging passage to me? How can I apply this to my life? I mean, Max, you just went through and said a bunch of names that you just butchered. 
Well, I want to, to start off with just this exhortation. We're told by Paul that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, re- reproof, for correction, for training up in all righteousness. And because Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38 is in the Word of God, that means that it's breathed out by God, and that what we see is profitable for us. And so what we must do is not just merely gloss over this because it's a genealogy, right? That's kind of the joke, why are genealogies so important? Who, who cares? Blah, blah. No, they're, they're so crucial to the storyline of Scripture. And so what we need to do while coming to this passage is that trust God that He has placed this in here for us to correct us, to uh, rebuke us. It's, it's for teaching. It's for reproof. It's for training us up in all righteousness. So we come to this passage, and, and maybe a, an easier way to talk about it is, is like a family tree. What we see right here is Jesus' family tree, and, and, and this is actually something that, that I'm kind of quite interested in, is, is uh, family trees. I've, I've always wanted to get one of those DNA testers that show you kind of where you're from. I, I, I know that I'm, I'm a bit bit German, a bit Irish, but I'd always love to just know on a deeper scale where, where things are. See, but my passion only ends there because then I see the price of one of those DNA test kits and I'm like, you know, I'm not going to spend money on uh, that much on, on that. And so it ends there. But this is a serious hobby for some people. I mean, some people take it so extreme that they find out who their family is by taking some of these tests, and then they literally go on trips across the world to different places where their family had lived. And it doesn't even matter if their family had lived there 500 years ago. They just want to go there because they feel some type of connection. Some people find this hobby because they want to find some significance. They want to be able to point back and and say that this famous or important person is a part of my my heritage. But what we see here is Jesus' family tree. But we need to ask the question, why is this right here? Why does Luke decide to wait three chapters to place Jesus' genealogy right here? It's because our hearts are so slow. Our hearts are so slow and hard to be confident that Jesus is the Messiah. Our hearts are so slow to have confidence That Jesus is the Messiah. So slow to have confidence in his life and ministry. And so what Luke is doing here is placing the genealogy right before Jesus starts his ministry. Genealogies or family trees are the 
most kind of important way that a, a Jew, uh, what they could do. And that's because there were, there were the 12 tribes of Israel. And through genealogies that helped show what you were able to do and not do. So if you were the tribe of Levi, you could become a priest. And how would they know that? Through the genealogy. Showing that you belonged to this line. See, but what this passage also presents us is it, it actually shows who Jesus' ancestors are. See, because our hearts are so slow and hard to have confidence in Jesus, there are some people who have come to this passage and, and say that, ah, this actually proves that Jesus isn't who he says he was. That's because of somebody part of Joseph's side, Jeconiah. Jeconiah and Jeremiah was cursed and God had told Jeconiah, you will never have any kings. And if Jesus is supposed to be this king, well, God had cursed Jeconiah. But as one man says, is that Jesus has the most interesting family dynamic. Because Joseph is not Jesus' literal father. And so Joseph's relatives aren't technically Jesus' relatives. However, Mary's relatives are actually Jesus' relatives. Which is what Luke is doing here is going down the relatives of Mary's side. So what Luke is showing us in this passage of 76 and a half names is that since Jesus is the promised Messiah, we can have confidence in his ministry. We can have confidence as we move forward in this book. See, Luke is writing to Theophilus, right? And not only is he writing to Theophilus, he's writing to Theophilus in an orderly account. And so what Luke is doing here is he's saying Jesus is starting his ministry, but before Jesus starts his ministry, let me give you, before I, before I dive into his ministry, let me give you his birth certificate. Let me give you confidence in who Jesus is and what he has done. And so we come to verse 23. We see this verse that seems kind of out of place. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. That seems just like kind of a strange half a sentence to place before 77 or 76 and a half names. It may seem out of place, but yet it is so crucial. Because one, it shows us the patience of Jesus. Jesus waited till he was 30 years of age to start his earthly ministry. Now, most, most scholars say that this is, this is because it was usually at the age of 30 that, that, the, um, that priests would actually become priests. 
And so Jesus, not wanting to draw attention to himself, was patiently waiting till he was 30 so that way he could start his ministry. Jesus, despite popular belief of he, of he was this rock star, he, he wanted all of this attention, was actually trying to lay low. And in order to do that, he waited patiently 30 years until he started his ministry. When I was a kid growing up, I set a goal for myself. I said, Max, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play varsity basketball as a freshman. And so what I would do is I would, I would work as, as hard as I could, telling friends that I couldn't hang out. And this was, this was from a young age. I told friends that I couldn't hang out. I, I went to the YMCA and I, I practiced every single day. And when I became a freshman and the season started, I found myself on the varsity bench. And that was terrible. Because I was impatient and wanted something quicker than I should have actually had it, it ended up being a terrible thing. How often are we like that? How often does impatience plague our hearts? Our hearts cry out. I want that job now. I want that car. I want that thing. You know, I, I, I just, I can't deal with that person over there. They, they, just, they just take my patience away from me. I hate that sin. I don't want it anymore. I want it gone now. Do it, do it now, God. And so our impatience, like a virus, comes into our hearts and makes us sick. And what we end up doing then is placing our confidence in ourselves. If you're not going to do it, then I'm going to do it because obviously, God, I'm the man and you're not. But what happens when we don't get it? What happens when we are patient? Well, when our confidence is in ourselves, what happens is normally we act like little teenagers. Ah, God! Why won't you give me this? You must hate me. Woe is me and my life. I'm going to my room. Don't talk to me. What happens when we put our confidence in ourselves instead of Jesus' life is actually the opposite. We don't have patience. We live in a microwavable society and, and each one of us is the problem. I know some, some people in here may think it's just the millennials, but it's not. 
But what happens when we put our confidence in the ministry of Jesus is that the fruit of patience is sure to come. And so Luke starts this passage this way by saying Jesus is about to start his ministry. But before he starts his ministry, if, if me giving you a divine reason that Jesus is the Messiah, let me give you the most reliable Jewish way that he is the Messiah. Up to this point, do you know how many times Luke has already told us that Jesus is the promised Messiah? God sent the angel to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Then God sent the angel to Joseph and Mary. Then to the shepherds. We see through two godly older Jewish people that, that, they, that they prophesy over this infant Jesus that he is the Messiah. He is the one that they waited for. And one of them even says, I can die now. Jesus, John's whole life up to this point in Luke, in the past three chapters, was just about preparing the way for Jesus, the one whose sandal straps that he wasn't even worthy to untie. The Father shouts and declares from the heaven tops as they open up, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. And so what Luke is doing here is giving us confidence that Jesus is the Messiah. So that way, when we read the rest of Jesus' ministry, we can have confidence that what God has promised is being fulfilled before our very eyes. And so we see a divine genealogy right in front of our eyes. And instead of going through and butchering all of those names again, what I'm going to do is just look at three key people. There are three familiar faces in this genealogy that we see. And this is partially why we looked at the covenants beforehand. Because our view of, of biblical theology is so crucial when we approach Scripture. We see our first familiar face. We, we see the son of David. We see David in this genealogy. Why is it important that David is mentioned in this genealogy? If, if we look to 2 Samuel 7.12 through 17, we'll, we'll see why. We'll see that, that God had come and prophesied to David about his offspring, about Jesus. As Starting in verse 12, we see this. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men." with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love, oh, it will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever. 
God is prophesying about Jesus to David right here, that David would have an offspring who would establish the throne of God forever. And so we see that, that Jesus, Jesus' genealogy, his family tree being told to us right now is, is crucial because David is a part of that family tree. And we are told right here that there would be an offspring from David who would establish the throne and kingdom of God forever. And we see that in Philippians 2. We see in Philippians 2 verses 9 and 11, 9 through 11, we see that, say this, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is an offspring of David. Jesus has come to establish the throne and kingdom forever. We see the next familiar name, Abraham. If we look to to Genesis 22, we get to see another promise that God had made, another, another promise that an offspring would come from Abraham. Genesis 22, verses 17 and 8. 17 and 18. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It is through Abraham that all the nations would be blessed. It is through the offspring of Abraham that all of the nations would be blessed. And we see this in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so Jesus being a an offspring of Abraham is crucial to him being the Messiah because it is through Abraham's offspring as we just read that the nations would be blessed. Jesus tells us this in in John. John 10. John 10, 16, Jesus Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. For the one to be the Messiah, they must be an offspring of David. They must be an offspring of Abraham. And we see in this genealogy that Jesus is the offspring of both. He is a relative of both. And finally, we see the the son of Adam. 
going all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity, God says to Adam and Eve, between you and your offspring and the woman and her offspring. And you will bruise his heel and he shall crush your head. There is an offspring from Adam and Eve who would be sent to crush the head of the serpent. We see this as Jesus, he died, he rose again, defeating sin and death. What Adam and Eve did way back in the beginning to separate us from God, what Jesus does is he undoes that separation and restores us back to Jesus himself. He restores us back to God. In order for the one to be the Messiah, they had to have been the offspring from all of these because it is through these promises that the Messiah would fulfill. And so what we see, what Luke is pointing out to us, is that Jesus fulfills this. He is the offspring of David. He is the offspring of Abraham and Adam. This is something that even the religious elite, the Pharisees, could not deny. Because if they could use this, they would have found a loophole to say, well, Jesus, Jesus isn't actually part of this family tree. He's not a part of this genealogy. But yet what we see as the kids are crying out, Hosanna, the son of David. Surely that would have been an opportunity for them to shut this whole thing down. They don't. Because even the religious elite knew that Jesus was a part of this genealogy. That this was Jesus' family tree. And so we can have confidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Because in every way, Jesus perfectly fulfills this. But why is it that he perfectly fulfills this? Because ultimately, Jesus isn't only an offspring of David. Jesus, no, isn't only an offspring of Abraham or Adam. Jesus ultimately is the only begotten Son who from eternity's beginning was in sweet communion with the Trinity. And so Jesus, being perfect, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of his creation. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is the free gift. This is not of your doing. And this gift is still free today. And so what Luke is setting the stage, how Luke is setting the stage is, He's saying, look, you can have confidence in Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who the prophets prophesied about. This is his resume. Say you, were, you had gone to the doctor. And the doctor said, you're going to need surgery. And you ask the doctor how much surgery would be, and you just say, I just don't know if I can flip that bill. So what you decide to do is go on Craigslist, type in doctor, and you see one that operates out of his house. So you click on him, you schedule a date. It's not anything major, it's just maybe you need your tonsils out. You're, you're heading in, you, you go over, you're laying on, you, you go through pre-op, and it seems like a pretty legit thing. And as they start to, to medicate you, and, and you're starting to get a little sleepy, and a little more sleepy, you're still having a conversation with the doctor, you're talking about family, you're talking about hobbies, you're talking about the news, And then you ask the question, how long have you been a doctor? And then your peripheral vision starts to go and your eyes get heavier and they start to close. And you notice that the doctor is just kind of staring at you blankly. There's this awkward pause and your eyes are closing even more. And the last thing you hear is, well, actually, I'm not a doctor. I'm sure at that point you would be freaked out because you just passed out. You've got no idea if this dude is trying to harvest your organs for the black market. But he doesn't have any credentials, right? We don't want to go to a doctor who who doesn't have credentials. They aren't a doctor if they don't have those credentials. Even if they're a bad doctor, at least they still have the credentials of going through the school and and all of those things. But what Luke is doing here for us is constantly showing us Jesus' credentials. That he is the Messiah, that he is the promised one. Oh, but how many times do we put our confidence in things other than Jesus' life and ministry? How many times do we, we act like the patient? Going and putting our things, putting our confidence in things that can't meet our expectations. How secret and seductive is sin in our hearts that tempts us and draws us and pulls us from the only thing that we should put our confidence in. What are you putting your confidence in? Is it your identity? Is it work? Is it cars or clothes or things? Are you putting your confidence in retirement, finances, Comfort? What is it that you are putting your confidence in? See, as soon as we take our confidence away from Jesus and we, we point it at something else, we are, we are like the patient, believing that this will satisfy us. 
when Jesus is saying, no, it's not that you don't have enough money. I'm right here. Just, just take me. I can satisfy every need. I am the Messiah that was prophesied about for thousands of years. Have confidence in, in me. Are you weary and heavy laden? Come to me for comfort. Do you continue to drink the salt water of the world? I have everlasting life. Since Jesus is the promised Messiah, we can have confidence in his ministry. Not to belabor this point anymore, I'd like to conclude just with a couple of exhortations, just a couple of encouragements. Because our hearts are so slow to have confidence in Jesus and his ministry, we tend to not even be aware where we're placing our confidence. And so what we must do is, is first come to God with a humble heart and say, search me, God. Know my ways. Reveal my sin to me. Where am I placing my confidence over you? Where am I trusting in the creation over the creator? What are we treasuring more than Jesus? And then second, when our hearts are distant and when they are in the dunes of despair, we need to remember. This is the beautiful thing about partaking in communion is that it is a, a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. And so when I place my confidence in something other than Jesus, I need to realign my focus. I need to remember what it is that Jesus has come to do and who Jesus is. I need to remind myself that Jesus is the offspring that would bruise or crush the head of the serpent. I need to Remind myself that Jesus is the offspring that would be a blessing to all the nations. I need to remind myself that it is through Jesus that the throne and kingdom of God is established forever. I need to remind myself that Jesus has come to pay my debts and that has been satisfied on the cross once and for all. And what I do is I look, I look to Jesus and I fight for confidence. It's an amazing thing that Luke is doing. He's saying, look to Jesus. You can have confidence in his ministry because he is the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. God, would you stir our hearts? Would you please stir our hearts for deeper fellowship with you? Would you stir our hearts that we would, we would see your son Jesus like a treasure hidden in a field?
that we would be willing to sell everything just to have that treasure. That we would be like the Apostle Paul who's willing to count all things lost just for this passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Would you encourage our our weary hearts and spur us on and convict us where we need conviction? Father, forgive me for not having confidence in your son Jesus and his life and ministry like I should. Would you use this church, would you use community church to bring this good news to the nations? I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we have just observed the word of God. We, we now know what the word of God says. So let us go from here doing what we have been taught, what we have seen, and teaching it to those we come into contact with. Have a great week.